This morning we're moving into the sixth commandment as we march through the ten this summer. This will be our only week on this commandment, and there's much that we could say about it. As I was preparing the sermon, I was realizing, in a way, I feel like I'm only scratching the surface of all that it means to think about what God says about human life and about the taking of it. But we only have a week, and anyway, it's a really short commandment. It's just two words in the Hebrew, for in English, you shall not murder. Traditionally, in the King James King James Version, uh, you know, if we remember the Ten Commandments, we would say, thou shalt not kill. But I think as we begin, I think it's important to really understand what are we talking about? Uh, What does the Hebrew word mean, and how can we understand what God is forbidding here? Murder is a better translation than kill, but it still sort of falls short of capturing the range of meaning that... Uh, the Hebrew word has. What exactly is God forbidding? I think it's best to say, you shall not kill unlawfully, because that captures the range of the Hebrew idea, which includes murder, that is, whether it's premeditated or just in the heat of passion kind of murder, that includes manslaughter, causing the death of someone by neglect or by carelessness, and it includes even situations in which there's Uh, an accidental killing. Uh, The biblical example that you find in Deuteronomy 19 is when you're chopping wood and the head flies off of your axe and kills someone. What does that mean for justice involved with with these people and the idea that that the family of the person who died would want to get revenge and all of that kind of thing? So God's law covers those kinds of things under this umbrella of this idea of not killing unlawfully. The commandment involves the direct instructions for these situations, but it goes well beyond them, as we'll see as we look at it more. This morning, we'll touch a little bit on some of the ethics involved, uh, but it's important to note that that, um, not all forms of the taking of another human life are prohibited. We know this as well because there were circumstances in the law of Moses in which killing was actually commanded. In times of war, situations of judgment, and things uh, like that. So that helps us, I th- hope, to understand the context and what's going on with the word, uh, these, uh, with these two words. And we will um, look n- now at this part of God's gracious law that's given for the guiding of Israel and for us today for our good. As we do, let's pray. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, Your word is good for us. It's uh, the light that we need to see. It's a lamp that uh, goes before us. Your word is true. It's a rock that we can build our lives upon. Your words are are inspired, and we need to hear them, and we need to understand them, and we need to apply them to our lives. And so we we pray that you would help us to do those those things now. Uh, Give me the words to speak that are yours, that aren't mine, uh, to, to... Lead all of us uh, into your ways. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking about this commandment, I was thinking about what is it that makes killing the stuff of our human imagination? The murder mystery is a classic kind of literature. Why is that appealing? Why are murder mysteries popular? Crime drama is on TV everywhere, right? From Perry Mason to CSI and then the like 15 spin-offs of CSI that they've had over the last few years, right? 
They keep making more. Detectives and cops and bad guys and the brutality of what people can do to one another, and we call this entertainment. And we have to show that the bad guy is really bad because he killed people. And so we, that tells us about how the, what the good guy is like, right? Because he can stop the bad guy. And the statistics about the number of murders and crimes that people that are shown on TV and that we absorb as part of our broader culture is really staggering. Have you ever wondered why? Why is this genre so popular? Why are we so interested in stories that involve killing? I don't know why. I don't have an answer. Think about that. If you have an answer, I'd love to hear it. We can discuss it in the sermon discussion class. Since Cain and Abel, murder has been a part of human existence. But why do people, why do we emphasize it? Why is it part of our entertainment? I think part of it may be, here's a, here's a couple ideas. Part of it may be that we desire to see justice. And so we want to see the, the, the worse the bad guy the, the more the drama of what he did, the more uh, satisfying it is when he's caught or when he gets what's coming to him or whatever. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe part of it is a sense of how important and irreplaceable life is. How horrible it is for life to be taken. It seems sort of ironic because these, this thing sort of seems like it desensitizes us to that. If that's what's always part of the plot, is that people die, multiple people die, and we have to sort of figure out why. I don't know exactly why this has become such a thing, but I want us to think about it as we think about what God is talking about in this commandment. Why is unlawful killing forbidden? There are a lot of reasons. I'm just going to, again, scratch the surface and sample a few of them. One is it's important to start at the beginning. In the account of God's creation, we come to the section that describes the creation of Adam and Eve. This is in Genesis 1, which is on page 1 in your Bibles, um, verses 26 and 27. On this day, the sixth day, as God is creating all of the land creatures, then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all of the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We encounter this idea a number of times in the book of Genesis. We notice that this is a theme that God created people in his image. And as we get to Genesis 5, we see that that is uh, how they continue, right? And that's how they're reproduced. In Genesis 5, this is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he named him Seth. So as humans reproduce, right, we're in the image of our parent, in the image of God. 
It's passed down from generation to generation. Every person shares this feature. And according to the Bible, it means a great deal. It's really important for us to understand that we're made in God's image. And of course, we could do a whole sermon series just on that. Part of what it means is that we're radically different from everything else that God made in his creation. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creative activity. The whole world was designed to be a habitat for us, a perfect place for us to live. God gave us the mandate to rule over the creation wisely as his representatives on the earth. God lives in us. God's power works through us. More amazingly than with any other creation, there's nothing else in God's creation that's that's the same as humanity in that regard. And, of course, we have immortal souls. Reflecting on the uniqueness of humanity, C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Lewis is reminding us that the lifespan of nations and civilizations and things that we think are so um, important, things that we think are almost eternal, right? They're not. Their length of time is nothing as compared to any human who's ever lived because of the immortality of our souls. Things that seem so important look differently or are insignificant in that sense. So people, of course, are in a very different category than animals and plants and all of the other living things that God made. And of course, in our world, people get confused about this idea as though every living thing were equal. Uh, That's sometimes the reason why people choose to be vegetarians. There are lots of reasons that people make, but one of them is is that the life of animals is is important and worth uh, preserving. The idea, of course, isn't always believed. What the Bible teaches isn't always believed, of course. But what is clear in the Bible is that people are more important than animals and plants, that people are, God's, uh, are, are the pinnacle of God's creation, to live in a relationship with him, very different than all of other living things. Many of you may have seen the sad story from the Cincinnati Zoo last year in which the three-year-old child had, had somehow climbed over a fence across this barrier and fallen into the moat in the pen with the gorillas. There were three gorillas in there. The zookeepers came and, and you know, gave the gorillas the signal to go uh, into, you know, to get out of that area and go to the other. And two of the gorillas obeyed and one didn't. And one became interested in the child and picked up the child and, and began to carry him around. And the zookeepers, of course, had to decide what to do. And they thought about tranquilizing the gorilla, but they were afraid that he would become even more agitated and seriously harm the child in the five to ten minutes that it would take for the tranquilizer to completely take effect. And so they shot and killed the gorilla. It's a very sad story, of course, and people on social media were very upset that they had killed the gorilla as though uh, you know, they la- they're lashing out at the zookeepers and lashing out at the parent, you know, this poor mother. Um, 
and, and, you know, who knows who else. It became this, this, you know, memes and all of that on the Internet. But from a Bible's, the Bible's perspective, they absolutely did the right thing. As sad as it is, they absolutely did the right thing to protect the life of the child. It's important, finally, to recognize that the image of God in humanity has been marred. It's been stained by the fall into sin. Every part of us has been tainted. Our minds, our bodies, our emotions were thoroughly broken and stained by sin. But the image of God in us isn't completely destroyed, of course. Francis Schaeffer used an image to, this, to describe this in which he said, hum, humans, each person is a glorious ruin. What he means is that we're like the remains of the castles that dot the European countryside. We can see the ruins of what was once glorious and full of splendor. We can picture, we can imagine how this castle must have looked in its heyday. But we see that it's, that it's broken, that it's decaying, that it maintains some of that sense of glory, but it's also been ruined. It's been marred. And that's the way we think about the image of God within us, that it's uh, glorious and also uh, ruined. I encountered another way to describe this uh, in the last couple of years in my research from one of the great Syriac Christian authors he was, uh, in his teaching on the birth of Jesus, he describes how the image of God in humanity became, he uses the word tarnished by sin, and how it must be refined as in a crucible by the Spirit, by the fire that would refine this image and restore it to its glory. And so he speaks of Jesus coming, the incarnation, as renewing the image of God in us through his incarnation and his redemption on the cross. It's just another way to speak about this idea that, we're, that we are glorious and also ruined because of sin. So that's this idea that, that one of the foundations on which this commandment rests is this idea that people are made in the image of God. Another foundation is that human life is unique and valuable because God is the one who gives it. God is the one who sustains the life of everyone. Genesis 2, we read that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. In Acts 17, when Paul is reasoning with the men of Athens, he says that the true God himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. These passages and many others teach us that God is the only one who gives and creates life and sustains the life of everything. Scientists can't make non-living things into living things. Right? God can do that. God alone is the one who gives and holds the mystery of life. I think this fact also requires us to recognize with Scripture that God knows all of our days if it's true that he's the one who sustains us, he knows when our earthly lives will end. If we believe in the God who gives life and sustains it and knows everything, then we're challenged, of course, with this idea that God doesn't give or take life by mistake. 
but has a perspective that ordains all that comes to pass in our lives, including the end of them. As followers of Jesus, we say this not based upon the facts or circumstances around us. We say this based on faith. Faith enables us to believe things about God's goodness and about his kindness and his love that we don't necessarily see or believe things that don't feel like goodness and kindness and love to us. And of course, this isn't easy. Many of us were here yesterday. The funeral of a man who seemed to have been taken from this earth too soon, too young. Taken from a daughter who needs a daddy. This isn't a new story in our church or our lives, is it? We have lots of examples in which God t- God's timing seems like the worst when lives are suddenly or painfully cut short. Some of us have witnessed the opposite side of God's timing. When life continues amidst great suffering or beyond memory or on life support seemingly just waiting. It's impossible to trust in a good and sovereign God when we see these kinds of things unless we have his help, unless we have his spirit, unless he gives us faith to know that there's more to the story of his goodness and his love. There's more to the story of it. There's more that he knows than we don't know. And some of that we may know more fully someday. There are many, you know, ethical issues connected here. The sixth commandment tells us that we shouldn't end another human life. That God is the one who gives life. That God is the one who takes away life, as Job said. So, as we reflect on this, what does it mean for us to be, what does it look like for us to be pro-life in the largest sense of that word? The Bible tells us that the life of every single person as an image bearer of God is to be valued from the unborn to the elderly, from the sick to the healthy, from the poor to the rich, from the refugee to the native born, from the unknown to the famous, from the orphan and the royal heir, from the neighbor to the one who's across the world from us. Right? That every person is an image bearer of God and is to be valued. And so I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I know there are very complex and often personally very painful issues related to these issues of life and the taking of it. We can think about abortion. We can think about physician-assisted suicide. We can think about the effects of soul-crushing poverty. We can think about issues related to access to quality health care. These issues are all tangled up, right? And I know that Christians, as Christians, in a, in a room this size, we differ in our understanding of how much the government should or should not be involved in all of these things. There's nothing here that's really easy at a personal level and at a societal level. It's complicated to know how much the institution of the church should be involved in these kinds of issues in the public square. There are probably lots of opinions in this room about some of these things. And I want everyone to know that we're welcome to discuss and even perhaps disagree with each other with charity as brothers and sisters in Christ about how these issues work out and what it is for a Christian to live in a broken world. Again, the sermon discussion class is a great way to do this. 
But the sixth, but here's the bottom line, right? The sixth commandment and all of God's word makes these theological statements. God is the giver and sustainer of every human life. God made every person in his image. And so to be pro-life means that we value every life and that we seek to create a culture of life within the church that goes into these difficult issues personally and publicly with the message of the value of every person and with the good news that Jesus came for every person, that his offer extends to every person. And that's a message not just of earthly life, but that's a message of eternal life in the Son. And I think as we think about these things, it's harder for our society to argue against Christians if we really are loving our enemies, if we really are advocating for everyone as best as we can in the midst of difficult and complicated things. These issues aside, we need to end by thinking about how Jesus took the sixth commandment to a deeper level from Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is bringing his disciples to the heart of the issue, right? And in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is a term of contempt, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is not changing the commandment. He's explaining what it means to really not kill unlawfully. And we might not have considered how far-reaching this commandment really goes, right? Because we're not murderers. I may have never killed anyone, but I know what it is to be angry at someone. And so Jesus begins to peel back and expose the intent of the law. And the intent of the law is that we would truly value life and that we would work to preserve it. And so if we live in a place of unrighteous anger, if we insult people, if we call them names, we're despising them. At the heart of such behavior is a kind of dehumanizing isn't it? It's making another person less, less than an image bearer of God, less important than ourselves, less valuable, less deserving of life in God's world and his sustaining care, right? That's where it goes in the deep places that we have to consider that insulting someone or cursing someone is really like murder, in the heart. And what we can say is very damaging. Get out of my way. You aren't worth my time. You're a fool. We know how damaging this is as, as people. We know how damaging this can be for our kids and for kids and teenagers with each other. And so kids and teenagers, this is dangerous. It's a big temptation, right, to call people names and make fun of them or laugh when someone else does. 
And we know how very hurtful it can be when people treat us this way. It makes you feel sick inside, right? To be mocked and insulted, it's humiliating. And there are ways that that can happen on the playground and in the lunch table, at school, among our kids. There are ways that that can happen, of course, among us adults who do the same thing, just often in more sophisticated kinds of ways. To value life means to stand against this kind of dehumanizing and making other people feel less and treating them as though they're less. It's not easy to do, right? Our human impulse is to make people who are different from us seem that way. They're different, and so somehow they are less important or are less valuable in our minds. You know, your enemies, they're not really humans. God's prophet Jonah fell into this trap, didn't he? At the end of Jonah's story, Jonah's very upset. You know, he's sitting out in the plain waiting for God to kill all of his enemies. He just preached to them. And now he's going to sit down and wait for, the, the, for God's wrath to fall on his enemies. But God provides this plant, and the plant grows over him and provides shade for him. And then a worm comes and eats the plant, and Jonah is so upset. He says, I'm so angry, I wish I could die because this plant died. And God says, wait a minute. <laughs> You're saying that a plant is more important than 120,000 lives. God's pro- this is God's prophet, right? He's sitting here ready to watch the death of thousands of people because they're his enemies and they're getting what he deserved, getting what they deserved, right? And he's more concerned about his own comfort. Jesus said to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, not, of course, to rejoice in their downfall. So how is it that a prophet of God can act in that way? What is the, this thing going on with his heart, Right? This is what happens when we see people as less than people because we're angry or because we insult them or because we can treat them as lower than ourselves. And every story, I think, I mean, I haven't done the research, but every story of genocide, every story of ethnic cleansing, every story of, the, of one group of people killing another group of people, right, has this component of dehumanizing in it, doesn't it? It has this propaganda that says they're not, their lives are not as valuable as ours. They're not worth living. We are. And we have a right to take their land. We have a right to take their lives. We have a right to take. I read an article a couple years ago about a woman who I think now is living in Alexandria, Virginia, who grew up as the daughter of a high-ranking Nazi officer under Hitler. Part of her growing up experience involved her father working in a prominent position in Auschwitz, the death camp outside of Krakow. And there was a picture, I think, in this story of this woman playing, this girl, you know, playing in the playground with this camp in the background. And she thought she had a normal life just playing in this playground, that she had a happy life growing up here, completely separated from what was going on nearby that her father was responsible for. And we think today, how is that possible? How can you ignore what was really happening? 
But we do it all the time, don't we? Just in less dramatic ways. It's harder to see the image of God in the homeless person or our political enemy or the fan of the wrong sports team, right? Or the sinners who are forcing their agenda against Christians and our beliefs, right? It's harder to see the image of God in others who are in whatever way against us. And so Jesus is getting right to the heart of the issue, that unlawful killing happens first in the heart when we devalue people. James highlights this tension so well in this, in this contradiction when he teaches about the difficulty of taming our tongues. If you remember in James 3, he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. And James says, Brothers, this should not be so. How can you, how can from the same mouth curse those made in God's image and also think that you can praise God too? So Jesus gives us something here in Matthew 5 to help us, to unwind this tendency to devalue and dehumanize other people. In verse 23, he talks about reconciliation. He talks about how we need to pursue our brother before proceeding to worship. In this passage, Jesus is putting the responsibility on the one, not not the one who was offended, but the one who knows that his brother has something against him. In other passages, Jesus puts the responsibility on the one who is offended to go and make uh, make known to the person who offended him how he hurt him. And so, whichever foot the shoe is on, Jesus is encouraging us to pursue reconciliation here in the context of the church. This is about brothers because that's how we diffuse our anger. What do we tend to do when we're angry at someone? What's the first thing that we do? We talk to someone else about it. (laughs) Isn't that true? It's so often what we do. And what Jesus is saying is that there's a different way to deal with our anger. And it's this idea of reconciliation with the one who's responsible and the one who's affected in order to deal with it. And practically speaking, of course, this isn't always possible. And wisdom and discernment are required to consider what can another person actually handle of a rebuke. It's not loving to blast people with both barrels, right? Jesus says that we must look and pick out the log in our own eye before trying to get at the speck of another. Reconciliation requires us to be absolutely willing to take responsibility for everything that we did wrong. And to seek reconciliation requires us to have a kind of humility and patience that has to be supernatural. It has to be something that's beyond what we can bear. And so this is a challenge for us to consider. Ask the Lord truly if you need to take steps to be reconciled with another believer or, of course, someone outside of the church. And in so doing, you may find relief from your anger. Beyond this application, what else can we consider from the sixth commandment this morning? I want you to know something as part of this sermon. I want you to know that every human is made in the image of God. No matter their physical or mental capabilities, no matter their age or health or where they're from or anything else about them, humans are made in God's image. 
They have immortal souls. They're the pinnacle of God's creation. I want you to know that. I want you to believe that God is loving even as he gives and takes life as part of his rule over the creation. It takes faith to believe this. It takes us to pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief when we, are, when we struggle to know how did God let this happen or why is the timing of this or all of these very difficult things that we face. It's honest to wrestle and to doubt, but I think that's the prayer, isn't it? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to cling to your goodness even when I can't exactly see it or when I think that it doesn't feel like goodness to me. God is the one who gives and sustains life. God is the one who knows the ends of our days. I want you to believe that as best as you can at this point with his grace to help you. And I want you to consider how to value life in the biggest sense. What can we do? We don't all have the same calling. We don't have all, all have the same opportunities. There are many different ways that we can seek to obey this commandment. Are there people that you can advocate for? Are there people that you can value in a special way? Are there people that you have devalued in the past and you need to repent, either personally or, or, or in sort of a society kind of sense? We think of this all uh, you know, often in the church, the way that the church has devalued groups of people and hasn't cared for them with the love that Christ has for us. Finally, I would say there's life in the Son. The Son of God has come that we can have life and we can have it abundantly. The sustaining of our earthly lives and the promise of eternal life in God's presence. May we increasingly be those people, the people of God who value each person and seek the good of everyone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have been given life. Everyone here Our lives are sustained and ordained by you. It's a blessing to live in this world that you've given us. We look forward to an eternal kind of life, a life free from this brokenness where we're just glory and not ruin. We look forward to that. In the meantime, we pray that you would sustain us and that you would make us people who have that message of glory and not ruin to those around us. Pray that, we pray that you would help us, help your people all over the globe to be wise and discerning and to know how it is that we can obey this commandment to the fullest. Give us the strength to do so through your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.